Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the new PNL, Principles and Leadership in Business, the podcast series. I'm Paul, host of the new PNL. Thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We believe business needs a new PNL, one that is as much focused on principles and leadership as it is on profit and loss. Because we know if your principles are right and aligned with your purpose and your leadership has a clear vision, focus, strength and empathy, then your business will be in profit and not loss in so many ways. This week, I'm very pleased to welcome best-selling author, entrepreneur, and CEO of Career Gig, Greg Kilstrom, to the show. As well as being CEO of Career Gig, he's also co-founder after his digital agency, Carousel 30, was acquired in 2017. Greg has worked with some of the world's top brands, including Coca-Cola, Dell, FedEx, Marriott International, MTV, and Starbucks. He currently serves on the University of Richmond's CX Advisory Board. Greg's newest book, The Center of Experience, talks about how customer and employee experiences can be operationalized into a cohesive brand experience. Greg is a regular contributor to Forbes and has been featured in Advertising Age, Smart CEO, Website Magazine, and The Washington Post. So Greg, a very warm welcome to the new PL. Thanks very much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks so, uh, thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Um, you wear several hats in your professional life, um, so perhaps we could start the show with just a bit of a brief introduction in terms of what you do at the moment, who you do it for. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm uh, one of the co-founders and CEO of CareerGig, and CareerGig is a, a web-based platform that connects freelancers with opportunities as well as benefits. Okay, and you've also written a number of uh, a number of books around agility in business, and you also host the Agile World podcast. If you could tell me a little bit about that as well. Yeah, sure. So I've, I've written a, a series of books um, on applying agile principles to, um, to various things, everything from branding to marketing and, and organizations. So um, there's, there's a few books in that series. And my most recent book is called The Center of Experience and talks about the combination of, of customer and employee experience. And then in addition to that, as you mentioned, I host a podcast called Agile World, uh, which ties all of those things together and, and talks about agility and, and adaptability in various aspects of business. Yeah. I mean, we hear an awful lot out there at the moment about the need, it was before the pandemic, certainly more so now, um, about business needing to to be agile, to, to pivot is the word of the moment at the moment, um, to quickly adapt to change. But I do think sometimes with agility, it's a bit like the phrase digital transformation. It means very different things to, to different people. And sometimes both phrases feel, I guess, a little bit like, like the emperor's new clothes. Everyone's saying they're more agile, they're digitally transforming and so on, but few actually understanding what that actually means or what it means for their businesses and their processes. So I wondered if we could start by you defining what you consider to be an agile organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's there's a couple things to, to keep in mind. So one is there is a formal agile methodology. And so, you know, there's people that have, they're a certified scrum master and, and things like that. So there, there, is, there is that formal um, methodology that some people subscribe to. Uh, while I think that's that's really important and it works really well in a, in a lot of areas, when I talk about agility, I'm talking a, in a, a broader sense of the term. But I think a common misconception about 
agility, adaptability, all, all of these things is that it can, it can feel or it can seem almost reactionary. And I think one, one of the things that I really embrace about uh, um, agile methodology is that, yes, you are modifying and you're optimizing and iterating over time, but you're not um, being reactive um, without considering the implications as well as really considering what's, what's happened. So in other words, in an agile process, you go in sprints. And so you, you define requirements you build something and then you take a you take a step back and you see okay well what what did we build how did it work what can we do better and what steps do we need to take to get to the next step in the goal i think a lot of people think agile and they think okay we're going to look at the numbers every day or every hour and make changes accordingly and kind of that's more uh that, that's a more chaotic approach than than an agile one yeah yeah what sort of mindset does it take um in the mind of a leader or a management team of an organization to, to create an agile organization, to create one that, that has it not just as a process, but has it in its thinking and in its culture. Yeah, there, I think there's a number of things. I mean, one is you definitely need to be willing to listen to and, and look at the data and, and make some decisions based on that. But I think you also need to, as I was referring before, you also need to be able to take a step back and and pause. I mean, there's if you surround yourself with really smart people, whether they're they're data driven or just creative and innovative, there are there's no shortage of, shortage of ideas. I think the a good leader in an agile environment is able to measure and and um, and and be able to to balance between okay we've, there's a million things we could do but what do we really need to do and, and what's going to move us towards that goal not wait too long not be too deliberative because then you lose out on on opportunity as well as um, the competition is moving as quick or quicker than you in some cases but it's really a it's a balance between um, that that reactive approach that we really don't want but also being too deliberative and um, and waiting, uh, you know, waiting too long to make decisions. And I think that's tough. I think that's tough for a lot of people that want to move the needle very quickly and and show results. I mean, in addition to that sort of mindset of a leader, I I wondered sort of more broadly speaking, what characteristics you feel leaders of businesses need to have today? We're clearly moving into or in the middle of, depending on how you define it, the the fourth industrial revolution um, with all AI and machine learning and, and, the other challenges and, and opportunities that uh, that this fourth industrial revolution bring. What different characteristics do leaders need today that perhaps they didn't need 20 or 30 years ago to, to move a business forward in this environment? Yeah, I think the thing that leaders are understanding more, uh, not everybody yet, but I think they're, that they're coming to understand more is that the, the tie between customer experience, employee experience, and organizational culture is so clear and so direct. And I I spent uh, quite a bit of time writing about this in my book, The Center of Experience. Mm -hmm. But I think, uh, you know, I I come from the marketing world and focused very much in some cases on on some fairly superficial things of, you know, let's make a great ad and let's let's write a good tagline and and have a good offer and and things like that. And the, the deeper you go, the more you realize that, well, you know, you can, you can have the greatest offer in the world, but if, if the experience the customer has is terrible, 
they may not even buy in the first place, but they're definitely not going to buy again or recommend. And, you know, then you go a little bit deeper and you see, well, if the employee that is either creating that product in the first place or delivering that product or service to the customer is not engaged, happy, really connected to the values of the organization, you're going to have problems down the line as well. And then one level deeper, if the organization doesn't really know who it is and what its values are, then none of this really, none of this is, is sustainable. And I think that's, that's part of my own personal journey, but I think that's also the, um, what, what leaders are, are coming to more and more. And I, you know, with, with, with employment and, and the economy where it is right now, I think, you know, a financial crisis can kind of obscure some of these more meaningful things with, with more immediate needs. But yes. pre-COVID, we were definitely on a path to organizations really embracing more that the, the organizational culture and values were, were becoming more and more important. Yeah. I mean, authenticity or genuine authenticity is, is you know, one of the keys to, to an enhanced customer experience, as you alluded to. I wondered how how a business defines it all, its authenticity. You know, if you have a business that's selling widgets to consumers, um, they've been in existence for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. A business is organic and it evolves over time and a new CEO comes in. How does she or he redefine the authenticity of the relationship with the consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think the the... The times that things like this has, has worked best is it's the authenticity was already there and it was a matter of discovering it. And I think that's that's where 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 companies run into to issues is when they tack on something. You know, when they when they tack on a social issue because wouldn't it be nice if we were retweeted? Uh, you know, talking about this. You know, definitely a, a noble cause mm-hmm. and, a, and a worthwhile issue. But when it feels inauthentic. Consumers are they're they're smart and they're getting smarter. They've gotten a lot smarter over the over the last several decades uh, to be savvy and kind of sniff this stuff out. And I think where it's you know some companies their their values may not be aligned with saving the world. It may just be having really strong relationships with their customers or treating their employees well. You know it doesn't it doesn't everything doesn't have to be a matter of you know, the, the end of the world or not, but it, it, it does need to be something that the company was founded on and then it can evolve over time, but it just, it, it can't feel put upon or else employees and, and customers, they're really smart enough to figure it out. All, um, well, there's a lot of conversations out there at the moment around social innovation and the responsibility that, at least in my mind, quite rightly, that business has to, to society in that virtuous circle um, between the relationship between business and society. I wondered whether and you touched on it briefly in your answer there, whether you feel all businesses should have some form of social innovation or whether for some businesses it just doesn't apply for whatever reason because of the nature of the product or whatever it happens to be. We, we, we are heading towards a world, whether it's the pandemic or the environment, where we all need to take collective responsibility. And I just wondered for those businesses that social innovation may not necessarily be an obvious fit whether they need to find it or how they go about making their contribution yeah i personally think that every company uh, needs to find a way to contribute i i think sometimes it's a matter of how they do it and and why they do it so in other words 
I think every company has should have the resources to be able to have some kind of volunteer program or uh, some kind of, you know, in larger cases have a foundation or, or, or things like that. And I, I think that is, that is something that is necessary, but uh, you know, how much they use it as a marketing tool and a, you know, something to kind of prop themselves up with. I think, I think that's where it gets really tricky. And, and, and it might even be, you know, I think there are organizations that off the top of my head, I, I don't have a good example, but I think there are organizations that could co-opt something and make it mean something over time. So in other words, if an organization started today investing in something and really, really trying to own something in 10 years, you know what, it, maybe it will be authentic and they can really talk about it meaningfully and you know what, drop it in some of their marketing and it wouldn't feel so put on. But the goal shouldn't be let's let's do a corporate social responsibility campaign to you know to get new business. It should be we are stewards of the world and and this is the right thing to do. And and if nothing else, you know I think that more and more employees are drawn to companies that that align with their values. I think that there's plenty of statistics that show that. And even if it's not an outward marketing you know campaign to consumers, it could be a way to attract the right kind of employees that share values. Yeah. What do you believe to be this sort of single biggest challenge to business leaders t today? I mean, if we put the, very hard to, but if we put the pandemic aside for one moment, um, what, what is the next big business challenge on the horizon for, for business leaders? Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time uh, in talk, thinking and, and talking about workforce and, and you know, my, my own professional journey as I mentioned, you know, led me led me deeper and deeper in the organization to think about that. And I, and I do think it, this is a bit pandemic related, but I do think the idea of a more flexible workforce is um, is going to be key, and it's going to be more and more key. I mean, here in the U.S., uh, you know, pre-COVID, 36% of the workforce was engaging in some kind of freelance and gig work, uh, whether that was their full-time job or you know, it augmented a a full-time job. It's it's estimated to be, you know, by 2027, about 50% of the U.S. workforce. And that, that was pre, you know, pre-financial crisis. Uh, and uh, what I know from, uh, you know, living through 2009 and, and that that global financial crisis, that really is what I, I believe created the gig economy in the first place. You know, the Ubers and Lyfts and Instacarts and, and all those really, they, they came to being short, very shortly after that in about 2010 or so. So, I mean, I think companies understanding, you know, we're increasing automation and taking humans out of the equation. We're living in a world where, yes, overnight almost uh, your your entire workforce could um, could you could need less of them overnight, basically because uh, you know because like think about the hotel and hospitality industry. You know that's been so hit hard by this. So I think flexibility in the workforce and at the same time maintaining the values and culture and all that. I, th I think that's, that's a huge challenge. I mean, we will recover economically and, and we will be, you know, there will be more hiring, but um, I don't think it's going to be exactly the same as it was two years ago. Yes. I think it's going to look a little bit different. And you touched there in your answer on, on the role culture plays and in any business culture is a positive culture is um, critical to a business's success. And much of that culture relies on the, on proximity, if you like, the proximity, the relationships that one has with uh, with their work colleagues and how they can work in a collaborative fashion. 
how does a how does a business maintain that culture when 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 percent of the workforce may be remote, working remotely, certainly for the next foreseeable period? What, in your view, can businesses do to ensure that the best of the culture is maintained in that remote working environment? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think the uh, first of all, just to, to comment on that, the, the question itself, like we have seen firsthand or secondhand at the very least, some organizations have adapted very, very well mm -hmm. um, to this shift. And, you know, either they were already doing a lot of remote work um, or, you know, potentially contract work as well. And others you see have just been struggling and because they never embrace that um, that idea even of remote work, let alone of, of contracting work and, and stuff like that. So I think one, one analogy that I've used before is, you know, if your typical onboarding time, depending on what sources you look at, it, it's anywhere between like six to nine months that it takes a, a typical full-time employee to truly acclimate to their new job. Well, you know, if you take a freelancer or a contractor, they don't have that. You know, they may have six to nine hours to acclimate to a company and really understand what they need to do before they need to be productive. And, and you know, that comes down to the, the metric of time to productivity. But if you look in another, you know, on the, on the customer side of things, it, I, th I think there's some similarities. If, you're, if your values and culture as a company are not immediately apparent to customers, you're not going to get those long-term customers um, to, to buy your product. That may be a little bit different in some segments, but yeah. um, but you know, overarching, I, I, I believe that to be true. And so when you think about, okay, well, what efforts are we taking to make our, our company and culture understandable to the consumer in you know 60 seconds in an ad or you know, a couple minutes on a web page or something like that? That's a good analogy to think, okay, well, how can we then take that in a similar way? Different, different messaging, you know, for a freelancer or a contractor, but the same idea of we've got to make it easy to, to distill. And we've got to also make the existing employees really understand it and be bought in so that they can evangelize as well about it. And so if you're doing that for customers, you can do that for your, for your contingent or contractor or freelance workforce. Yeah. I mean, one of the, key challenges for any business in the digital age is accepting that the, I guess, the balance of power between the brand and the consumer has dramatically shifted. There's a democratization of public opinion through digital and social media channels. And, and that means that we live in an age of hyper-transparency where brands can't control the message they used to in the same way as they used to and, uh, and manage their reputations in the same way as they used to. So how have, in your view, have leaders had to adjust to this reality and how has it changed the fundamentals of the customer experience? Yeah. I mean, this, I, I love talking about this. I mean, I've spent, I spent quite a bit of time in, in two of my books, uh, agile brand and the agile consumer talking about this, this power shift and this, this dynamic. And I think the, those of us, um, you know, living through the social media age, I mean, you know, I, I started my marketing agency back in 2003, like right before, social media marketing became a, a thing and really adopted and saw that that rise of uh, you know a lot of companies were very afraid well you know they don't own their presence on these on these social media platforms and you know one you know brief example i had a financial services client you know typically a conservative industry 
that, you know, they said, well, we don't really want to be on Facebook or Twitter or any of these things because we don't want people trashing us and talking about our bank branches and all this. And, you know, I, I felt like it was obvious, but I had to tell them like, listen, it doesn't matter if you're on there or not. They're talking about you. The, the, the question is, do you want to be part of the conversation or not? And while that's a, you know, that, that was a, almost a decade ago now, it's, it's hard to believe. I think the same thing applies is, I talk about this in the Agile brand, my, uh, one of my books, which is you don't really own your brand anymore. You co-own your brand. And, and it's not, that's not a bad thing. It's scary to, to brand managers and those that were taught about tightly controlling things and brand guidelines and all that. But in essence, your customers and your employees, but your, your customers are helping to write your brand guidelines for you. And embracing that and understanding that means that um, you know, means that you're, when, when something goes off script, you're going to be, a, you're just more agile and adaptable by, by design as opposed to, you know, everything, it being a crisis and stuff. So, I mean, I think there's a lot, uh, this is going to continue to shift. I think there's a lot more um, consumer, you know, with more access, with more um, choice, all of those things, um, you know, consumers are going to continue to have more and more power. And I, I don't think that's a bad thing either. I think that with that comes a sense of ownership. And when consumers feel like they have more ownership over something, they're going to be more loyal. So it's a, there might be some trade-offs, but there's also some benefits. I'm interested in the phrase you, you just mentioned, that consumers now co-own that brand with the, with the original owners of the brand, if you like. I wonder what implications that has in terms of the way the brand, to touch on our earlier question, the way a brand develops its its values and its principles and whether there's any inherent conflict in that when consumers believe they have a, a fundamental stake, if you like, in that brand as well through their social media presence. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's the onus is becomes more and more on, on the, the brands then to make it very, very clear what they do stand for because the, you know, a potential nightmare scenario is the, let's just say that a, a less desired group of consumers co-ops your brand as the symbol for something that you don't want it to be a symbol for. And, you know, you can extrapolate that into all kinds of scenarios, but that, that could, that gets a little frightening when you think about it. And while your brand may get a lot of loyal customers out of that, that niche group, there could be repercussions, repercussions as far as, you know, damaging your brand uh, potentially irreparably, if not, at least temporarily, but I mean, on the on the less um, extreme end of that, it's um, if if people don't know what to make of your brand, they are going to either ignore it or they're they're going to ascribe their own meaning to it, and you know it just becomes that much more clear that you you stake you stake out your claim more and more, and with it you take responsibility for it, um, you know, good and bad, but you also take responsibility that that those values and that brand may not appeal to everybody, but. Um, it will strongly appeal to those that, that, that align with you. Yeah. I know when I was researching for this podcast that um, you, you're very busy on the speaker circuit, perhaps less than two, 2020 for the obvious reasons, but as, yeah. as a rule, um, you must speak to a lot of CEOs and senior managers around, around the world in a variety of industries. I wondered your view on what industry is next in terms of a major disruption when it comes to either product innovation or customer experience? And, and why would that be? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think the, 
there, yeah, the, the, the pandemic has, has shifted so many things. I mean, I think, you know, the, the traditional industries that, that you think of when customer experience becomes so key, like, you know, hospitality. So, you know, I've worked quite a bit in the hotel industry and yeah. even some in the restaurant industry and, and all those. I mean, those are the traditional ones where you think about, okay, well, you've got, uh, you know, at, at restaurants, you've got waiters interacting with, with customers on a daily, like that's, that's an easy one to see the connection. I think, um, you know, I, I've worked a fair amount in the financial services industry as well. I think they're not only are they a conservative industry, but um, they've been a little slower to adopt mm-hmm. um, the, the customer experience. I mean, I, I know, you know, plenty of people will complain about their banks and, and all those kinds of things. So I, I think they've been a bit slow, but I think with, with FinTech and, you know, the disruption that's happening in the industry itself, I think it's forcing them to rethink how they interact with customers, um, you know, in a way. And I think professional services organizations are, are taking a new look at, at customer experience as well, because it's, you know, B2B companies, I think traditionally they, they've been the, um, they've been overlooked in a lot of, in a lot of innovations and a, and a lot of other things. There's certainly plenty of innovation in the B2B tech space, but it's, it's, it, it's an interesting, I think it's an interesting area to, to look into with, um, with customer experience as well as employee experience. Yeah. Where is the line in your view between digital and technological disruption of a market and technological or digital destruction of a market? And I, and I'm thinking about, specifically and then you know there's been commentary from time to time over the last few years on this big tech huge tech moving into an industry um and most industries need to evolve clearly uh, but there's a there's a line between evolving an industry and almost destroying it in the process and creating a monopoly and i wondered with all of your experience in multiple industries where you feel that line is yeah it's uh, you know a, a a great question. I mean, I, and I don't know that I have a, a great answer to to match it, but I think you know the 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 concern is real, and I and I think it, it comes down to um, there certainly there's room for for disruption, and and more importantly, there's room for improvement in in almost any industry. And the the, the question, I think, the challenge comes down to there are companies out there that are so big and so well resourced that, you know, they can afford to completely fail if they, if they want to take over an entire industry. Oftentimes they don't fail when they do it, but um, you know, they can afford to fail versus what it really comes down to is how much opportunity actually is there for a small company to not only disrupt, you know, so to speak, but last and grow. If, you know, instead of getting gobbled up by one of those, one of those big companies, I mean, essentially tech conglomerates now that um, they they can own. I I don't have a great answer for that question, but I I agree. I think the opportunity there, there's a lot of opportunity for startups to grow and come up with good ideas and raise money and, and, and grow followings. But, you know, I think it's to be seen. Do, is there another Facebook out there in the world that, you know, it, not exactly like Facebook, but is there another Facebook or Google or Apple out there ready to be created? Or, um, you know, are there just a bunch of companies that are going to get bought by Facebook and Amazon and, and Google and all that? And I, I can't say I know the answer. Yeah, yeah. If we come back to sort of creating an agile organization for a moment, you know, when, when you 
get people at all levels within a business, from senior execs to staff, to to buy into a vision of creating a more agile business. Um, sometimes it's a difficult sell because it's it's sweat and money now for a conceptual benefit later, if you like, and it's quite a hard sell in today's austere and highly competitive environment. I mean, ironically, you need more agility to to compete, but it's still a hard sell up front, if you like. What advice would you give to someone who is tasked with managing or trying to create a more agile organization, overseeing that process in their business? How do they start? How do they bring on those key stakeholders? And how do they demonstrate um, milestones, if you like, in that agility process to keep people on board? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you, you kind of touched on, on both things in, in your question. So I mean, one, absolutely leadership. This is it's a top down that leadership has to be bought in. They don't have to do all the work, but they've got to be bought in. If they don't, if they don't buy into the, the concept of, of agility, then it's not going to last. Um, the other thing is, um, you know, you touched on being able to show milestones. I think it's being able to pare down um, your your, your, you know, proof of success into something that is manageable. Think of proofs of concept or a beta, so to speak, or, you know, something like, don't try to conquer the world in the first, in the first couple months and say, okay, we can re, you know, we can change this entire organization to be agile, find some quick wins um, and, and show those, make, make it easy. They, they need to be meaningful numbers. They, they, you know, it can't be something that people roll their eyes at. Like, of course you can do that in, in a few weeks or something, but make it manageable enough that you can show success. And then, uh, you know, that, that tied to, to buy-in from leadership, I think is definitely the way to go. Yeah. There's a, a quote attributed to ex-US president, Harry Truman. And to paraphrase it, it is, people make history and not the other way around and periods where there is no leadership society stands still progress occurs when courageous and skillful leaders seize the opportunity to change things for the better when you look across the business environment at the moment and you consider everything that's on the horizon the pandemic we're in the middle of climate change ai and so on do you think our business leaders are standing still or leading a progressive and purposeful movement forward and if you could, whether you believe they are or they aren't, if you could provide any examples to that effect. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, well, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't know that I have some great examples. I mean, I will say I'm, I'm seeing a lot of reactionism in this and, and I'm not seeing a lot of, a lot of leadership. And I think that's a bit concerning um, I know, you know, there no crisis um, is. I mean, in in hindsight, they're all foreseeable, right? But um, you know, no no one could have seen this this most recent thing coming. Um, you know that that specifically, but yeah, I I mean, I gotta say, I'm I'm not. I I believe that times like this are an opportunity. I mean. The way I look at it is, I mean, there are so many terrible things happening right now. Like we as a society, as, as human beings, like we've got to find a way to make something good out of this. And I think there are going to be lots of success stories that, that come out of this and, and ways to, you know, that, that we're able to take a problem and, and turn it into something that maybe mitigates against risk next time, if not, um, you know, if not solving whole new problems, um, you know, I mean, I, I go back to the 2009 crisis. I think 
again, the, the, the gig economy was, was created from those. And there's certainly, you know, there's certainly some, some negatives with, with aspects of, of some of those companies in particular, but there's a lot of positive in that it created a new way for a lot of people to earn money and, and, and work. And I think, I think personally, it's too soon to, to really see the, the impacts of that. But I, I do believe that we're going to see some success stories come out of this and just, you know, if nothing else, an example like the idea of remote work. I mean, in my work with company culture and things, remote work is a huge um, way of leveling the playing field in diversity in organizations, for instance. I mean, you know, whether you're taking care of your kids or you have a, a spouse or partner that, you're, that you need to take care of, parents, so on and so forth. There's so many reasons why even just giving full-time employees the ability to work remotely can level the playing field in, in hiring and, and having employees. Maybe that's an outcome out of this is that a lot of companies learn that they can handle remote work and then you know we can start building towards a more diverse workplace. And I think that benefits everybody. Yes, yeah. I mean, I know certainly in the UK, um, there are a lot of conversations now about, you know, a lot of people couldn't afford to live in London. So they lived in the, in the smaller satellite towns and they commute one, two, three hours into London um, often because it was argued at that point that businesses, you know, our business can't work remotely, if you like. Um, needs must over the last six months, and they've proven that they, they can work remotely. And I think it changes the the dynamic. People are spending time with their children. They're having a bit more of a life, and they're still doing their job, but they don't have two to four to six hours commute each day. And I, I do, I agree with you. I think it will fundamentally change the particularly in the UK, the centralization of all of the work around London, for example. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. And, you know, I, I hopefully there's more, there's other positive things too, but that alone, I mean, yeah, think, think about, I, it's been a while since I commuted that, that far, but I mean, think, think about that on a, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. I mean, that, that alone, to your point, I mean, that, that work-life balance part of it, I mean, that's, that's hugely valuable. You mentioned in one of your answers earlier um, the freelance or gig workforce in the U.S. I think you cited 36%, um, and it's going to increase to 50% over time over the next few years. I wonder what that does to the psychology of work, so the loyalty of the employee to their employer because of the distance of relationship, the, the certainty of income or the uncertainty of income in many respects for freelancers the kind of the, the strength of the social relationships that exist around work. How does, how does this fundamentally change the psychology of work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I, I think the, uh, I think one thing to consider here is, well, first to, to directly answer that, I, I think it does make it more clear on uh, more um, important for the organization to, Again, like I was saying earlier, make their make their values and their um, all all of those things a lot clearer. Make more clearly define their culture as well as as well as where they want their culture to go. Um, and you know, if if there needs to be a shift. Um, but I also think you know on on the flip side, I think it gives us all an opportunity to think. And I'm 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 writing a follow up to. Um, it, book to um, called the agile workforce that actually deals with this quite a bit is we are so our our view of work is so company centric and um 
you know, another stat, um, you know, to, to throw out there at the beginning of the 20th century um, in the, uh, in the United States, there was about, uh, you know, 70% of the workforce was self-employed, you know, in some gig worked and, you know, exist in the way that it does today. But, you know, so it, it went down to about 7% in the, in the late seventies. So, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of other um, things that you can draw from that as well. But I think all that to say is we've been putting so much focus on work is about the companies and, and sure companies are providing the, um, the, the, the salaries and, and the, the resources and all of those kinds of things. But if we flip it on its head and say, if the, if the employees themselves have more power in the, in the relationship and can choose when they want to work, how they want to work, who they want to work for, when they have more power, then I don't think that, I don't think that anybody suffers in that scenario. Um, mm. I do think it's a, it's a complete shift and I, you know, I, I can't blame companies for um, not, not wanting to go too far down that path philosophically at the moment. But I, I do think that um, it's going to continue to, to increase because, you know, if for no other reason than if the middle class and the, and the, you know, it continues to shrink, I mean, in the U S you know, certainly we're having these, the, the, the trend lines are, are not promising, but you know, when the middle class continues to, um, uh, decrease in in earnings and, and all those kinds of things they need to pick up more work and I think you know gig work and freelance work is a way that you can work as much or as little as you want to or need to um, and you're not so dependent on one single employer to you know do they have enough hours in the day for you to work so uh, you know there's there's so many there's so many things that are, are kind of combining into the into the um, the issues here it's it's sometimes it's a bit hard to apart yeah i mean this this next question may be maybe probably the the lead for another whole podcast but i wondered if you, you touched on the point there uh middle class incomes going down uh, or not heading in the right direction people may be looking for additional work to supplement that it does make me wonder though whether there's something structurally wrong if people can't survive off their major job do we have a, a more systemic structural problem with work and the way we're remunerated for it if those who were once holding down, I mean, I, I don't know how old you are, I'm 51. My father worked. Um, my mother was home with the seven of us. Um, we didn't have a flash life, but we, we had a sustainable life. Most parents now, there's both of them are working um, and some of them can't making ends meet still. And I just wonder whether if people are having to find second jobs, whether we have a structural and systemic problem rather than just uh, an availability of work problem. Yeah. I mean, and, and definitely agree. I think we could spend an hour talking about talking <laughs> about this alone and, and I'd probably want to bring in an economist to, <laughs> to weigh in on some of this as well, but no, I, I, I definitely agree. I think it's, I don't, I, solving that or, or even, you know, improving it takes a lot of commitment from a lot of different parties. I mean, you know, I think here, here in the United States, um, you know, our healthcare situation is just, you know, it's, it's confounding to me some, sometimes the way that it's set up. And, you know, one, one of the things that my company career gig does is offer uh, not only health insurance, but also, you know, other types of, of that, that safety net type stuff. So life and disability and 
and all those things to freelancers. And, you know, we do this because a lot of people are taking full-time jobs um, in order to get access to that, that, those safety net type things. So, you know, if you get sick, you can actually go to the doctor and, um, you know, God forbid something, something worse happens, you get, you know, uh, disability workers comp, th things like that. And so, you know, but getting a full-time job has its own drawbacks of, you know, whether it's commute time because you live far away, whether it's just inflexibility with other needs in your life, like taking care of your kids or, or other things like that. And so, you know, we're trying to do our part to, um, to help with that. I mean, different countries have different um, you know, d different needs along those lines. But um, I do think that um, separating, you know, again, here in the States, separating um, your ability to see a doctor from whether or not you're full-time employed or not, I mean, that's a huge problem that's, you know, it's got to get solved. I mean, I, um, you know, and, and, but I think, I think that the idea here can be extrapolated to anyone, anywhere in any country is, we we are tying a lot of our of our opportunity and well-being towards you know whether or not the company we work for survives and so you know one way of looking at at the freelance economy and um and you know gig work and all those things is at the very least it's it's putting more control in in the individual's hands it's diversifying the way that you you make money um, and, and therefore it does, it does give the individual a little more power. I mean, there's, there's certainly downsides to it as well. Like I mentioned, you know, the access to some of those benefits you get from, from a, from a company, um, you know, definitely are, are a benefit to a salaried employee, but, um, you know, so, I'm not sure if I exactly answered your question, no, I but I think there's I mean, a lot in, in that. More of amusing, I think, than a, than a direct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Greg, finally, at the end of each podcast, we have a, a new P&L to the point section where we ask each guest to just provide one or two key takeaways that listeners can think about and perhaps apply to their business when it comes to leadership. What would your one or two pieces of advice be as we, uh, as we roll the podcast over? Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I think going back to the, the organizational culture piece is if you don't know, if you're a leader in an organization and you can't clearly state what your values are and the type of culture that your organization has, I mean, I would say drop everything and and figure that out. Um, there's a lot of ways to do that, whether it's, you know, with internal resources, with consultants, you know, all that. The, the mechanics of how it's done is, is less important than if you don't do that, your employees don't know and they can't help your customers, your customers don't know and they don't know why you're important. And as we talked about the, you know, the freelance and, and contract workforce, they're not gonna know either and they're not gonna be able to represent you as well. So, I mean, I, I think that's, um, you know, that, that's a huge thing. I mean, the other I would say is just on, on the topic of, of agility is to truly understand not not some misconceptions like I was talking about the reactiveness and, and all that, but truly understand what agility means and and learn what it could mean for your organization. And yes. and it, it means different things for different um, different companies, but really really look at that as 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 a differentiator moving forward. Craig, I've uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Brilliant. For all those interested in learning more about what Greg and his team does at CareerGig, please go to careergig.com. 
And to all of you who have downloaded and listened to this and other episodes of the new PNL, I thank you once again for taking the time. And as I said in the introduction, if you like what you've heard, please take a moment to review us. It all helps with our ratings and our rankings. And if you'd like to subscribe, please go to principlesandleadership.com. Finally, before we go, a quick word from the sponsors of this podcast. The podcast was sponsored this week by UK multimedia design and animation studio, Kamuka. You can check them out at kamuka.com, C-A-M-O-U-K-A.com. And if you'd like us to consider a specific topic related to the new PL or interview you, let us know. We'd be very happy to chat. So I'm Paul, host of the new PL. Thank you once again for listening.